Hey guys, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. I'm your host, Timothy Maurice. And I'm a behavioral psychology author helping you simplify neuroscience and the complex areas of human and brand behavior. Thanks for taking this journey through the brain with me. Today, in episode three of our seven-part Secrets of the Unconscious Mind series, I share a conversation I had with neuroscientist Dr. Ethan Cross about how chatter impacts our brain and decision-making and what the secrets are to controlling the often unwanted and destructive chatter in all of our heads. Guys, you're going to enjoy Dr. Ethan Cross. And oh, please do rate and comment on the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. In popular culture, there's often this belief now where be present all the time, be in the moment. I think that's taking a message way too far. I think what we want to figure out how to do is not make people always be in the moment, but how can we make people better mental time travelers? Okay, so things you can do on your own. Uh, as I mentioned before, often we get zoomed in so narrowly on the problem. What we find is this ability to get some mental space or distance from our experience can be very helpful. Welcome back to the Brain and Brand Show. I'm Timothy Maurice, and today's show is focused on helping you understand the neuroscience of the voice in your head. While building a better relationship with your inner world can lead to more self-control and external influence and impact in your relationships and, of course, your career. My guest today is Dr. Ethan Cross, one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind, an award-winning professor at the University of Michigan and Ross School of Business. He's a neuroscientist and the director of Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory. He's the author of an exciting book called Chatter, The Voice in Your Head and How to Harness It. Ethan, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. Thanks for having me. Well, congrats on your book, Chatter. I have to admit, I was gripped from the opening story. Uh, I can imagine like being in that space, the letter, the whole dynamic. We can talk a little bit about that in a moment, but before we dive in, you consider yourself a mind mechanic. Please elaborate. Well, you know, one of the things that that we, we do a lot of research on in my lab is trying to understand not only how people can improve their ability to control themselves, improve their ability to think or feel or behave the way they want to behave, but also what makes that work. So, you know, we want to understand the mechanisms that underlie different forms of self-control. So just like a, a car mechanic, right, doesn't just get a car to run. It also, he or she also knows what makes the car run. What happens if you move this lever that way or change this gasket? That's what we try to do with the mind. We try to understand the mechanisms that make the mind uh, do what it does um, so that yeah. if it's doing something we don't want it to do, we could get in there with pinpoint precision, make a modification, and then get people running well. Yeah, it made me think about the mechanics of the Wall Street banker. I'm sure you know the story where he woke up with this sort of compulsion, this compulsion to shoot his family and end up shooting himself. But before he did, he wrote a note and said, I don't know what's happening to me in my brain. Uh, please study please study my brain, please unpack what happened. And they found a tumor next to his uh, amygdala and, mm. you know, thinking about the mechanics, whether it's some sort of scar tissue or whatever that's causing us to re react or respond a certain way. Or this is why I really wanted to have the conversations because the mechanics of 
emotion and self-control, I feel like needs to be spread. And it seems like your father understood this when you <laughs> were a child and he started w- trying to work on your mechanic to open your hood up at a very early age, as early as three. What did he do? How did he do? How did he work on helping you control and divorcing your head so young? Yeah, I had a, an unconventional dad who, uh, in his spare time, liked to read Eastern philosophy and talk to his three-year-old son about it, which as a three-year-old, it wasn't always that understandable, to be honest. But uh, <laughs> whenever anything you know wasn't quite working out for me from a young age, he would encourage me to, quote unquote, go inside and you know, find the kernel, meaning like the kernel of truth took me a while to figure out what that was, not a, you know, GI Joe character. If you're familiar with those toys, yeah. Um, yeah. basically he would encourage me to introspect, to use my mind to solve the problems I was experiencing. And that was a skill that really served me well throughout my childhood and adolescence. I had experienced problems, nothing, you know, too uh, too grand or extreme, but you know, I'd ask someone on a date, they'd say no, or I didn't do well on an exam, or I didn't clean my room. My mom got mad at me. I'd introspect. I'd try to figure out why I was feeling this way. I'd come up with a solution to move on so I didn't get stuck worrying or ruminating about stuff. Um, and then I went to college and I took my first psychology class during my second semester of my first year. And what I learned is that a lot of people do exactly what my dad told me to do when they experience problems. They think about those problems to try to find solutions, but their attempts to find the solutions often backfire. They often end up spinning and said they worry, they ruminate, they catastrophize, they get stuck. And, and that to me was a giant mystery. Why is it that some people, some of the time can use their mind to solve problems and and create and innovate, right? This is an amazing thing we have between our ears is brain, which allows us (laughs) to to like blast people off this planet into outer space and safely come back. Like we can solve amazing problems. Yet when it comes to things like a disagreement with someone else or being rejected, we often struggle to the point that we physically make ourselves sick. Why does that happen? What are the mechanisms to go back to the mechanics of it all? What are the mechanisms in the mind that make self-reflection helpful in some cases, but harmful in others Uh, that, you know, I went to graduate school to, to, to learn how to study this. And I've been studying it for the past 20 years. You know, you frame it as chatter and I want to establish up front, you know, you're a neuroscientist and that you do believe you can control the chatter or the voice in your head, right? Yeah. So let, let, let's, let's lay out some definitions because I think they're often useful because we throw around these terms in lots of different ways in, in casual conversations. So when I talk about the inner voice, the voice in our head, that's our ability to use language to silently reflect on our lives. And we use this inner voice. We use language silently to do a lot of different things. Um, at the most basic end, if I were to ask you, Timothy, to just Keep a a nugget of information active in your head. So try to memorize a phone number, 209-0501. Repeat it in your head. Okay. Okay, you got it? You've just used your inner voice, right? So this ability to rehearse verbal information silently, that is a key function of of something called our, our, our verbal working memory system. That's a system we all use all the time, Okay. Uh, our inner voice helps us do that, but our inner voice helps us do lots of other things like 
plan and simulate for the future. So before I give a big talk, I often in my head think about what I'm going to say and actually say it in my head. And then sometimes I'll even hear what's the obnoxious audience member. What question are they going to ask me? And then I'll respond to them back in my head. Interestingly, Timothy, usually the things that I say back to the audience member in my head are things I would never say to their face, but it feels good to, um, you know, tell them off uh, internally. So that's our inner voice too. We also use our inner voice to uh, control ourselves. Like when we coach ourselves through a problem, put this part here, don't do this. Or at the, I'd argue most complicated level, we use our inner voice to tell the story of, of our lives, right? Like we experience events. We try to make sense of those experiences. We try to process them. How does the fact that I acted this way and this person said this about me, how does that impact my sense of who I am? We are, we use our inner voice to shape that internal narrative get, that gives rise to our sense of self. So that's the, that's the beauty of the voice in our head, but it can also have a negative manifestation. And the negative manifestation is what I call chatter. When we try to use this voice, this, you know, try to use language to work through a problem, but we get stuck instead rehashing over and over the bad stuff, ruminating and worrying. That's chatter. And I absolutely do think we can manage that chatter. Um, there are lots of science-based tools that exist that we can use to basically turn the chatter off and turn the healthy side of, of our inner um, voice on. One of the things that got me gripped early on in your book is the idea that it seems it seems perfectly natural. You alluded to this earlier that going inside is something that we've all bought into. You know, it's it's an ideology that makes complete sense. But when we experience stress at work or in relationships, going inside can create chaos. Why does the the attempt to go inside becomes such a disaster so often. The reason that happens is um, when we, when we experience a problem and go inside, we tend to hyper-focus. We zoom in very narrowly on the problem at hand, which makes sense. Something's bugging us. You want to focus on it, but we get stuck in this tunnel vision mode. We're focused so narrowly on the thing that's driving us that floods us with these negative emotions that make it challenging to be objective to think through that experience from a broader perspective that might allow us to think about it more constructively. And so it's that zooming in tunnel vision that all, that often gets us into a lot of trouble. And, and it's, it's not something that we aim to do. It, it's this negative byproduct of an otherwise very helpful response, focusing on a problem. So, if the problem is that we're zoomed in too narrowly, we just keep on thinking about what that other person said to us and what we felt and, 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 and we're overcome with the emotions and we keep on focusing on it over and over and over again. It stands to reason that one of the, the tools that can be useful there is stepping back to think about the bigger picture, getting a wider view of the situation. And in fact, uh, what science has revealed is that Many, many tools that help us manage chatter help us do exactly that. Step back, focus on the bigger picture. The example I like to give people is, is to, to really um, bring this idea of what, what I'm essentially talking about is psychological distance, getting some distance from your experience. The, the, the example I like to give is to ask people to imagine a time when a friend or a loved one came to them with a problem 
that they were worrying or ruminating about. They can't find a solution, but they present the problem to you. And it's relatively easy for you to coach them through the situation. The reason that is, is because you've got psychological distance from their experience. You have the perspective to weigh in more objectively. And, and the neat thing that we've learned is you don't have to go to someone else to get their perspective. That can be useful, but there are things we could do on our own to regain perspective and break the chatter spell. I'm imagining a pet sitting there looking at us after a long day. And if there is some form of verbal working memory system that they are working through, I doubt that they have it. I'm not sure. I mean, I haven't studied (laughs) animals, but what, what I think is that this is one of the things that makes us uniquely human. Do you think that's the case? Yeah. And in your example reminds me of the the famous book by uh, Robert Sapolsky, why zebras don't get ulcers and, and (laughs) you know, they don't, they don't have this system. And, um, you know, when I talk to people about chatter and self-talk, the the default response I tend to get from people is, first of all, thank God, uh, you know, I'm not the only one who experiences chatter. Thank you for telling me that. And, and the good news is that if you experience chatter, you're not alone. Most people do at times. Um, but the next thing they say is, how do I silence my inner voice? How do I get rid of it? And my response is, that's not the, that's a dangerous goal to have. And the reason for that is one of the, the, the blessings of evolution is the fact that we can talk to ourselves. This ability to use language to reflect on our experiences in the world, I think it's an amazing superpower. It's certainly something that distinguishes us from other species. Our ability to, it, you know, it helps us plan and simulate for the future. It helps us save our past experiences, learn from mistakes. It helps us problem solve, innovate and create. These are things that make us special. Language helps us do that, but it can also get us into trouble. And so the challenge is to identify when language gets into us into trouble, when talking to ourselves leads to chatter. And then once that happens, figure out not how to rid ourselves of language altogether, silent self-talk, but rather to minimize those harmful negative conversations that we have. In my book, Chatter, I actually tell the story of a neuroanatomist who had a stroke, um, which wiped out her, her language capabilities. And initially, you know, before the stroke, she was someone who had a propensity to worry and ruminate. And she, she often thought about wanting to just quiet her mind. And initially after the stroke, she in fact described that experience as being strangely euphoric. No more little whispers of worries and ruminations. But what she also learned is that with her working memory gone, her verbal working memory gone, she, she also lost the ability to make sense of her experiences in the world. And, 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 and she very quickly began to lose her sense of self of who she actually was. So I think the challenge is not to rid ourselves of, of our inner voice. It's not to silence it. It's to harness it. It's to, it's to keep it working in the productive range rather than the, the unproductive range. And, and that's what I've spent my career studying, how to do that. How do we break the cycle of negative thoughts? I mean, if you want to get yourself back on track, you know, knowing that 
negative thoughts can get into this cycle that's very difficult is one thing, but breaking it is another. Well, so um, by breaking it, do you mean once you're stuck in chatter, what can you do? Yes, uh, once you're stuck in chatter, yeah. Well, so there's not one single thing you can do. Um, There are boatloads of tools that exist, science-based tools, and they work together in many cases. Different combinations of tools work for different people in different situations. The way I talk about them in, in my book and the way I like to think about them is these tools can fall into three different categories. There are things you could do on your own, ways of transforming the way you think about a situation that can be useful for nipping the chatter in the bud. There are ways of communicating with other people, what ways of leveraging our relationships with others that can be helpful or quite frankly, harmful if you have the wrong kinds of conversations with others, but, but relationships with others that can be a source of help. And then there are tools that exist in the physical world around us um, that can also help us. So, um, so do you want me to walk you through a couple of examples from each? Would that be helpful? Or? Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Um, okay. So things you can do on your own. Uh, As I mentioned before, often we get zoomed in so narrowly on the problem. What we find is this ability to get some mental space or distance from our experience can be very helpful. And there there are lots of different ways you can do that. One way is to try to give yourself advice like you would give to someone else and actually use language to help you do that. And by that, I mean, use something called distanced self-talk. So try to coach yourself through a problem using your own name and other non-first-person pronouns, so words like you. So just to give you an example, if I'm struggling with, all right, Ethan, how are you going to manage this situation at work? What are you going to do? What I'm doing there is I'm using words, names, and second-person pronouns, you. These are words that we almost exclusively use when we think about and refer to other people. These are the words of others. And so the idea is that when you use those words to refer to yourself, It's like a psychological jujitsu move. It's automatically switching your perspective. It's getting you to think about yourself like you were someone else. And we know from lots and lots of research that it is much easier to advise other people than it is to take our own advice. Mm. And so distant self-talk helps us give ourselves better advice, the kind that helps us think about situations as challenges that we can manage rather than threats that are going to sink us in. So that's one thing you could do. Uh, Another way of getting distance and reframing a problem that you're experiencing chatter about is if it's an acute problem, something that is a current source of stress, but that will eventually fade, you could jump into the mental time travel machine and do something called temporal distancing. Think about how you're going to feel down the road when the problem ends. So let's take COVID as an example. COVID is, is awful for practically everyone. Uh, Awful is probably putting it mildly. Well, one thing that I do to manage COVID is I, rather than think about how how um, terrible the current situation is, and it is pretty terrible, I, I think about how I'm going to feel six months from now when I'm traveling again on vacation with my kids, sitting on a beach, sipping a pina colada or three, and and, and hugging people again. What that does that makes it clear that it's a way of broadening my perspective, right? It makes it clear that as awful as what I'm experiencing is right now, it's temporary. It will eventually end. That gives me hope. And we know that hope 
can be a powerful tool for managing chatter. You can also go back in time, like travel back in time. Like I often think about the pandemic of 1918. That was by all accounts much worse than what we're experiencing right now. But guess what? We got through that. We survived. Not only did we survive, we thrived after that. The roaring 20s, innovation. We got through that. We'll get through this again. So that's a different kind of distancing tool. Both of these tools, though, they break us out of this kind of zoomed in focus, this tunnel vision that perpetuates our chatter. So those are two examples of things you could do on your own. Lots of other things, lots of other tools I talk about in the book. Um, in terms of our relationships, uh, I think this is, talking about relationships is really important because one of the things we know about chatter is that when people experience it, they are often highly motivated to talk to other people about their problems. And indeed, popular culture reinforces this this motivation that we have. Like we're often told if something's bothering you, talk about it with others, get it off your chest, Mm -hmm. vent your emotions. You know, Freud talked about this, Aristotle, lots of others. What we've learned is that venting your emotions on its own does not help people manage their chatter well. In some cases, it can actually make it worse. The reason for that is if I find someone to talk to about my feelings, so you and I are buddies now, let's say I, I'm struggling with something, I call you up and I start telling you about what happened and how I felt. That makes you and I feel really close and connected. There's an intimacy to sharing in something personal that feels good, right? Um, it strengthens our friendship bonds. But if all you do is ask me questions about what happened to me and what I felt, what that, what that doesn't do is help me reframe my experience in ways that ultimately help me work through it. So it, it, in fact, just keeps that negative experience alive. So the best kinds of conversations between two people are where the other person you're talking to does take some time to learn about your experience and what you felt. They, they hear you. That's important. It's important to share your emotions. But at a certain point in the conversation, they also cue you to go broader. So you might ask me, hey, Ethan, but you've experienced conflicts like this in the past. How have you dealt with them in the past? Or... Hey, I've, I've, I experienced this before. Here's what I've done. So different ways of, of trying to broaden that perspective. That's what makes good social support conversations uh, work. And it's not just venting. So l- let me pause there because I feel like I'm dominating the conversation. But, um, <laughs> but, but th- those, Look, those, are, th- those are two buckets of tools. Well, you, you're the one who has a lab working on this type of thing. So we want you to dominate. You also argue in your work that that the wonderful ideal of living in the present is not only hard to do, it's not exactly what our brains were wired to do. Yeah. The human mind did not evolve to always be in the present. We spend between a half and a third of our waking hours drifting off in mental space and time to the past and the future. And I would argue that this is an amazing, another one of our superpowers. It's um, I mean, think about what traveling in time in your mind lets you do. It lets you learn from our, lets you learn from your mistakes. It lets you yeah. plan for the future. It lets you fantasize. It it lets you problem solve, right? Create things. This is what mental time travel do. That's not about being in the moment all the time. To be clear, there can be enormous benefit that comes from being present and in the moment. Sometimes that can be great. I think my ability to drift off into space, though, when I'm going for walks and go to other places 
is probably part of what makes me, you know, somewhat good at what I do, right? Mm. Like it's an amazing tool. So in popular culture, there's often this belief now where be present all the time, be in the moment. I think that's taking a message way too far. I think what we want to figure out how to do is not make people always be in the moment, but how can we make people better mental time travelers? How can we empower people to travel into the past or the future without getting stuck? Because that's effectively what happens. We get into the mental time travel machine and it breaks down when we revisit a problem in our past and we can't get away from that problem. And so we're stuck there. That's not good. And when that happens, one solution can be to refocus on the present, but there are other things we can do as well. And so I think it is a bit of a a messaging shift that the goal that we're striving for when it comes to well-being is not always being in the moment. It's about having more control about our ability to travel through time, whether it be to the past, the present, or the moment. How can we be really flexible and fluid in our ability to do that? It feels to me that the moment is becoming increasingly and increasingly less important to people. Something I've been thinking a lot about is just how much what happens in the footprint that we create on social media and the posts we create is is superseding the importance of the moment. Have you thought much about social media's role and causing us to either lose control or not have control over a moment? What are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, you know, social, social media, I think is an incredibly complicated space. And I mean that in a, in an exciting way. So, you know, I, I think of, so I've been studying social media for about 13 years now and its effects on well-being. and it's tempting to reduce social media to this one monolithic entity, but social media is a new environment. Um, and much like the offline world, which we spend a lot of time interacting with. We don't talk about the offline world as this one thing where <laughs> engaging in the offline world is good for you or bad for you. It depends on how you engage it. Where do you go? What neighborhoods do you go to? Who do you talk to? How do you talk to them? All those different ways of navigating the offline world can make a difference for our emotional lives. And I think the same is true for social media as well. Now, there are certainly ways in which I think social media can get us out of the moment. Like when we're supposed to be talking to other people at dinner, but are on our cell phones, logging into our Instagram and Twitter feeds that can definitely pull us out of a a momentary experience. But at the other end of the spectrum, I think social media can really allow us to channel how we're feeling at the moment. So one of the things that social media does that sometimes I think gets people into trouble is It provides us with a tool to broadcast our chatter the moment it triggers, right? So, you know, earlier we were talking about how when we experience chatter, we often want to share it with other people. Well, um, in the, in the offline world, there are some, there are some obstacles to doing that. We often have to find someone to talk to that can take time. Like, I don't know about you, but I don't have like, a a list of people just waiting for me at any moment's notice to listen to what I have to say. I wish I had that. I don't, I have to find them, call them. Are they busy? It takes some time. 
Uh, and, and usually actually as time passes, my emotions calm down, right? Time heals in general. It does, uh, social media, you know, the moment you are experiencing an emotion and have a temptation to talk to someone else about it, you can do it, pull your smartphone out of your pocket and, and share what's on your mind. That's what Facebook asks us to do. What is on your mind? And so that can have some negative consequences, right? It can lead us to share things we might regret um, and, and really share it to a much broader network than we want it um, to be shared with. On the flip side to that, social media can also provide us with new avenues for, for getting support and providing other people with support. So social media is very much um, relevant to the experience of chatter, but the way in which it is relevant uh, as I talk about in the book, is not straightforward. It can help us. It can make our chatter worse in some ways if we use it in particular ways, but it can help us if we use it in other ways to seek and obtain support. And, and I think the really exciting moment in time that we're living through right now is we've now amassed some evidence, some data that can provide us with a bit of a roadmap for utilizing social media in ways that are helpful versus, you know, not using it in ways that are harmful. We didn't have that roadmap five or 10 years ago, but now with a sufficient amount of science, it's beginning, the blueprint is beginning sure. to emerge. And I think that's really exciting. As we wrap up, I have a question that could alter the trajectory of my life. No pressure. Okay. I have, oh a, boy. I have a person, I have a person very close to me. Uh, we, I went for a walk the other day and we were on the call and I think for about 45 minutes of this walk, we discussed the idea that there are a number of things you can do to ensure that when you're in the middle or somewhere between stimuli and response, between when something happens to you and how you respond, that in the middle there, how you respond, no matter how emotional or how influential how impactful this stimuli is or what happens to you is that you can do things prior to position yourself to respond differently like there are tools there are exercises that that could influence how you respond in that moment and we were going back and forth because she was often saying that the what happens to you is almost isolated or how you respond is almost isolated. It just depends on how intense something is. And I just really believe that you can prepare your body. You can prepare, prepare your nervous system to enable and equip you. <laughs> I think you know where I'm going with this. So what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think, um, I think the ability to intervene in that stimulus response chain is, is an amazing capacity and one that one that really does distinguish us from other animals it's we are not we are not automatons in the sense that we are not always um, victim to the situation we possess the ability to use our mind to change how we respond to different stimuli and in in a certain sense, a lot of the tools that I talk about in my book are about doing precisely that. If our default tendency is when we experience stress to zoom in so narrowly 
in ways that can ultimately be counterproductive. We possess the ability to intervene there, to broaden the focus, to change what our response actually is. And there are lots of different ways we can do that. And, and, um, and I think that's an amazing capacity that we possess. Now, we also possess the ability through, by getting much better at intervening in, in responses to stimuli in our world that are harmful, the more we intervene, the more we may learn to have more adaptive responses. So, you know, ultimately, I think the goal is if, if we're re- reacting to things in ways that we don't like and aren't working for us. So say, say we have a default tendency to automatically react to an insult with violence. Lots of people do have that tendency. The hope is that with repeated practice and usage of tools that can break that tendency and replace it with more uh, adaptive ones. So rather than violence discussion, for example, we'll get so good at breaking the response in that way that the new response will become automatic and we won't even have to think about it. And our new default will be one of connection and, 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 and being civilized and so forth. And so, so that's the goal, right? To, to intervene when we need to, and then ultimately come up with a new set of automatic responses that are, that are healthier, not always easy to do to make that, to, to re, you know, to change our response tendencies, but we certainly possess the ability to do it. I like the framing of that response tendencies. I think her point was that once you're an adult thirties, forties, your response tendencies are, are damn near nearly uh, cemented. And, you know, I was arguing about neuroplasticity. No, you can rewire your brain. She's like, look, at the end of the day, when someone is that age, um, it's going to be very, very difficult, which is your point. Any final word on that? When you 30 or 40, your response tendencies can be changed? Yes or no? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I, I very much believe they can be changed. Now, you know, there are short-term changes and more long-term enduring changes. Are they easier to do short-term than long-term? Maybe, but I absolutely think that we possess the capacity to change. Now, one thing that is, I think, useful for understanding how to make that happen is when I think of how to regulate ourselves, which is fundamentally, I think, what this conversation is about. How do you control yourself? There are two pieces to that puzzle. There's motivation. You have to be motivated to change yourself. And then there's skills. You've got to know, you got to have the tools, right? So simply wanting to change, if you don't know how to do it, let's say you want to stop having chatter. I think a lot of people who experience chatter, people who get anxious and depressed, they want to stop it but they don't know how to actually do it. You need the tools too. But then you can have the flip side to that is there's some people who have all the tools that we know about, but they're not motivated to use them. So you have people, for example, let's say taking, take weight loss as an example. Some people know exactly what they do, what, what they should eat and how they should exercise. They've got the, the glorious home gym in their homes. They've got all the right foods, all the resources to use, but they're not motivated to do it. So mm. if you're not motivated, you're not going to use the tool. So you need both motivation and tools. And you give me a 30 or 40 year old or 50 year old that's motivated and has tools. And my prediction, my bet um, is that they're going to change. Well, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to share this conversation is that your book is 
fully loaded with tools and and perspective on this. I want to close by asking you, why do photos of mothers and mother nature help us mentally? Well, they do it through different pathways. Um, photos of mother of mothers and, and loved ones more generally, uh, when we see those photos, um, that activates, well, I should back up. The photos of mothers, and they have to be mothers that we love, which usually the case, right? Sure. <laughs> but, but, but when these are what we call attachment figures, they activate in our head a mental representation. They activate thoughts about that loved one. And when those thoughts are activated, along with those thoughts come related thoughts like, I have a connection with this person and they love me and they're there for me and they can help me if I need help. And all of those thoughts can be comforting when we're experiencing chatter. Uh, Mother nature, uh, that's a, that helps us through a different mechanism uh, or set of mechanisms to go back to the, my, my, uh, my mind mechanic ism. Um, so, uh, so nature can help restore our attention. When we're experiencing chatter, we, we often, um, we only have so much attention that we could focus on anything at a given time. And when you're out in nature, nature captures our attention in a very soft way. We're gently kind of like fascinated with the world, which allows our, our attention to restore. And it turns out photos or virtual nature experiences watching a movie can simulate the experience of being outdoors uh, pretty well. Dr. Cross, thank you so much for joining us on the Brain and Brand Show. Thanks for having me. Great conversation. And I appreciate the fact that even after your CBS experience, that you're still doing media. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it uh, it just keeps uh, it keeps going. But I think you can't uh, can't give in to that. So, yeah, absolutely. No, I appreciate it. And for those who want to know more about the CBS story, you've got to go and read or listen to the book. And I appreciate everyone for downloading this and listening and please share this episode with someone you care about who's interested in getting to know and building a better relationship with a voice in their head until next time